Mark 15, 16 through 39. Uh, just like we sang today, we're going to find out that Jesus was, in fact, our shield. Uh, I don't know if you've ever held a shield before. Maybe you had when you were younger with toys and things like that. Um, when you get struck and you hold that shield up, maybe you feel a little vibration, um, but you find out that the shield took the damage. The shield took the damage, and that's what we're going to find out today. <sighs> the crucifixion. I told uh, the first service this, but personally, this is probably one of the most difficult topics for me to preach on. Because the crucifixion is one of the greatest events in the Christian faith. And how do you do it justice? Another reason why it's difficult to preach on is because, as some of you know, I'm, I'm a crybaby. When someone you love passes away and you give a eulogy, and maybe you've been to funerals, you see them giving that eulogy, and you see them stumbling or, or not even getting through their paper. How much more so when we talk about our Lord and Savior and what he has endured. Ah, so, the crucifixion. Before we read um, our long passage, let's pray to God and ask for his divine blessing. Let's all pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now to the pinnacle of the expression of your love for the world. You're giving your only begotten Son to that wretched cross. I realize more and more that we can passively glance over these words, not only because of the stubbornness of our hearts, but also because we simply cannot bear the weight of these words ourselves. Father, how desperately we need you always, but especially now. You are God, the sovereign maker of heaven and on earth, and you have done a truly marvelous work in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. A marvelous work worthy of being proclaimed to the world a marvelous work worthy of being beheld. Such a marvelous work that, Father, may nothing and no one, especially ourselves, distract us from looking, looking at Him. So, Father, for Your glory and for our welfare, by Your grace and Holy Spirit, May we behold him now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 39. Let's now give our attentive listening to what God has done for the world. Hear now the scandalous gospel 
from the word of God. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. The crucifixion. Um, usually I like to uh, allude to the verses and look over the verses and preach on the verses. Um, but because we have such a long passage, I'm just going to allude to them and hopefully we can follow along and I'll allude to chunks. But before we talk about the crucifixion, one thing I want us to know is in the Gospel of Mark, there's so many themes. But one of the themes in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God with overwhelming authority and power. This person is not to be trifled with. He is sent from God. And he's been doing miracles, signs, healing people, casting out demons, 
with a word. And that's one of the themes in the Gospel of Mark. Another theme in the Gospel of Mark is, in spite of all this, many people are spiritually blind to him. They see him, but they don't really see him. They don't see the Son of God. So today we're going to talk about the crucifixion, and the crucifixion is like a two-edged sword. Even today, it's like a two-edged sword. You talk about Jesus being crucified out there, you're probably going to get some apathetic responses. Yeah, okay, that's what you believe. I don't really care. Or you're probably going to get some really hostile responses. I don't believe in that. I don't care about that. Get away from me. I don't, that's not for me. The crucifixion. And on the other side, you probably get people, Christians, who are willing to give up everything that they have to bend the knee and worship this person who's been crucified. A double-edged sword, the crucifixion. Today, we're going to see the same thing, a double-edged sword. We're going to see what the majority people saw we're going to see what the minority people saw. And then we're going to end with, who do you see at the cross? Who do you see? So let's dive right in. Who did the majority see? If you look at verse 16 to 20, Mark tells us that there's this battalion of Roman soldiers who gathered together and they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus. And they adorned him. And they hailed him as king. But the thing about what Mark tells us, and you find it right in the next verse, they saluted him. It sounds like, oh man, this is really a king. But you find out very shortly that you can hear the satire in their voices as they said, hail the king of the Jews. And as they proceeded to strike him on the head with a reed and to spit on him and to mock him. This is no king. They don't care about him. This is a nobody. So who did the Roman soldiers see? They saw... Someone, a target worth bullying. They didn't see a king at all. They saw maybe even someone less than a man as they harmed him. They mocked him. And then in the next verses in 21 and 22, Mark tells us that these same Roman soldiers compelled Simon to carry Jesus' cross. And we, we get a little confused. Oh, wow. Maybe they had a moment of compassion. Maybe they saw that Jesus couldn't carry the cross by himself. It was a heavy cross. And so they're like, oh, let's get Simon. Let's get this random dude helping carry the cross. But that doesn't seem likely, does it? They just mocked him, beat him. Why would they help him now? And so, as many commentators have said, they didn't help Jesus. They just harmed Jesus too much. Why is that a problem for the Roman soldiers? 
the Roman soldiers have a job. And their job is to crucify Jesus. He's not allowed to die on the way. He needs to die over there in Golgotha. So what did they do? They got someone else to carry his cross, Simon. As Jesus walks, probably dragging his feet, barely able to carry his own body to that cross. So what did the Roman soldiers see? They saw a job that needs to be done. They saw another person that needs to be crucified or to die in the most agonizing and torturous way. Uh, my friend Rupert Hunt Taylor said it this way. Pastor Taylor, Rupert Hunt Taylor said, the cross was designed, one of the reasons why it was designed is to prolong suffering as much as possible until that person dies. And to the Roman soldiers, he needed to get there. That's their job. Then in the next verses, in verses 24 and 25, the Roman soldiers crucified Jesus and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. When someone you revere dies, you take care of their possessions. But what do we see here? You see the Roman soldiers almost playing a game for his clothes. They didn't care about him. They were like vultures ready to take from a dying man. Um, here's a little tangent. The Roman soldiers took the garments and they cast lots for them. That means when Jesus was crucified, he was most likely naked and exposed. Uh, the figurines you see of Jesus hanging on a cross with a loincloth um, is most likely not true. Um, it's possible that he had that on. But it's customary for Romans to strip them naked before they're crucified. That's who the Roman soldier saw. A nobody. A warm. A less than. What about the crowd? Who did they see? Well, Mark tells us in verse 29 that the crowd were, was also thoroughly unimpressed. They passed by Jesus, deriding him, wagging their heads. And if you hear what they say, they're like testing him. At the same time, they're insulting him. It's almost as if they're saying, hey, Jesus, prove that you're the son of God now. Come on. Prove it now. To the crowd, he is someone that the government and the religious leaders of their time has deemed deserving of capital punishment. He's a big sham. And it's interesting because if you look at the Gospel of Mark, um, the crowd is kind of bipolar. They're so excited to follow Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I want you. And now they're totally against him. It's easy to follow Jesus when he's doing miracles, signs, healing people, casting demons out, providing food and drink. It's easy. 
But who wants to follow him now when he looks so pathetic and weak when he can't deliver anything for us? Who'd want to follow this defenseless and miserable man now? Who'd want to carry the cross when the cross suddenly becomes so real? Nobody. He's a big sham. So while the crowd is mocking him, Mark tells us that the religious leaders chimed in in verses 31, 32. They mocked Jesus as well. Uh, this is a little bit interesting. Um, the crowd and the religious leaders are mocking Jesus. Right before this, we found that the Roman soldiers were mocking Jesus. The crowd and the religious leaders resemble the Roman soldiers. So if the crowd and the religious leaders had Jesus alone in the palace like the Roman soldiers did, then it's probable that they would have beat him as well. But they're in the public. So they're not going to. To the religious leaders, Jesus is certainly no Messiah. He's not their Messiah. He's a delusional blasphemer worthy of death. He is a mockery. And to make matters worse, Mark even adds at the end of verse 32 that those who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him. Um, in the other gospel, uh, Gospel of John, you find that one of the robbers um, crucified actually repented. Um, but here you don't see that. You see that even dying people <laughs> reviled him. So here's what you get. The great majority from the Roman soldiers to the crowd to the religious leaders all the way to even dying people did not care for him. He is not the son of God. They don't see that. He's just a worm. And why I keep saying worm is because in Psalm 22, and which is going to be quoted later on, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says that. They saw him like a worm. That's who the majority of people saw on that cross. They saw nobody. Um, one of the reasons you can have confidence in the word of God is because, like now, it's honest and true. Mark is forthright. He's telling you as it is. Jesus was treated by the great majority as refuse, as garbage, as warm. So there are people who don't like Jesus now. And the Bible affirms that they didn't even like him back then. In fact, they hated him to death. That's the majority view. Who did the minority see? If we go back to verse 22, Mark writes about a man named Simon. And then he adds this peculiar detail. Simon, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. What's that all about? We don't need that. Just say Simon, who carried his cross. 
Or just say, some dude, some stranger, who cares? Why do we need to know his name? Well, maybe we have to know his name, Simon of Cyrene, because he's different than the other Simons. Okay, sure, let's, let's give that. But why do you have to add who fathered Alexander and Rufus? What's the point of that? We don't need that. This is about Jesus. Um, it's most likely that Mark put that verse in without explanation because he doesn't need to explain it. What that means is he most likely expected his first readers, his first audience to know who Simon, Alexander, and Rufus were. I'll give you an example. So if I said, oh yeah, Pastor John preached a great sermon last week. I don't need to say, Pastor John, Sung Ya Kim, the husband of Lin and the father of three who works at New Church. You already know who I'm talking about. Same thing goes here. Mark already knows that they know who Alexander and Rufus are and Simon. So who's Simon coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus? Simon is most likely a Jew who came to celebrate the Passover until he was compelled by the Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross. But more than that, Alexander and Rufus, we find out in the other New Testament books that Alexander and Rufus are most likely very prominent Christians. What that means is that they believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and they will give their lives for him. Why? Probably because right here, their father Simon happened upon Jesus. Or better yet, Jesus happened upon Simon. So what does this mean? You got the religious leaders who see a charlatan of a Messiah. You got the crowd who sees this delusional sham, someone worthy of capital punishment. You got the Roman soldiers who see a job that needs to get, that needs to be done. And then you have Simon here who saw something, someone differently. What, who did he see? Simon saw someone worthy of giving up his life for and rearing his children unto. Simon saw Jesus, the Son of God. So imagine this. Simon is carrying Jesus' cross. That probably means as he's lugging this cross, he sees Jesus in front of him. The Roman soldier saw a miserable, pathetic man who can barely carry his body going to Golgotha. Simon saw something differently. He saw not weakness, but he saw this bloodied Jesus determined to take every step all the way to his execution, full of purpose, full of determination, Nothing's going to stop him. Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming. Jesus went valiantly. And Simon saw that. 
Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18? No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord. And that's exactly what Simon saw in Jesus. He was laying his life down intentionally, voluntarily, and heroically. This was no warm. Simon saw a king, the son of God, the Messiah fighting valiantly all the way to the finish line. He did not stop. He was going to get it done. Do you remember what we read in verse 23? The Roman soldiers offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. What is wine mixed with myrrh? Wine mixed with myrrh is an anesthetic. It's used to numb your pain so that the cross won't be as agonizing as it is. What do we see in uh, verse 23? Jesus refused to drink it. When Simon saw that, that was not weakness. That was undaunting courage and fortitude. The wisdom and power of God to save. He saw Jesus fighting all the way to the finish line to save his people. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you know that Jesus could have at any time come down from the cross. It would have been easy for him. He's done so much, so many great things. Coming down from the cross would have been nothing for him. It would have been easy to give the crowd and the religious leaders in verses 30 and 31 what they wanted. So why didn't he? You've heard this before. Because it wasn't the nails that held him on the cross. It was his unwavering commitment to save his people at the expense of himself, even when the people were completely opposed to him. He did it all by himself, a one-man army. This is unparalleled strength, extravagant love, true kingship displayed, the one and only Messiah and the Son of God. This is Jesus. That's who Simon saw. And, and it still gets worse. <laughs> um, you think it would have been enough to hang on a, on a tree and just receive this unrelenting hostility from the people. But the cost of salvation was far more. And we find that out in verse 33. It says that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land for three hours. What is darkness? Um, that pastor I, I mentioned before commented, it's the same image that you see before the great exodus, before the slaying of the firstborns. What does that mean here? You see darkness and you see it in movies and things like that. You see an omen. You see judgment coming. Where from? From heaven. So what else happened on the cross? Mark tells us in verse 34, Jesus cries with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, 
Lima Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you think about the forsakenness of God, the Bible affirms that it's not just a split relationship. It's not a, a relationship at um, enmity, but it's the absence of God's favor and the presence of God's wrath. You are his enemy. So here's what a comment said. And still, and still, in verses 35 to 36, the bystanders are as daft and deaf as ever. While Jesus was calling for God, these people did not see or hear, so they thought he was calling for Elijah. I'm going to add this part. But still, but still, but still, even so, Jesus didn't grow weary. He didn't give up in spite of never-ending ignorance of the people. In spite of their opposite of support. Jesus did not cower from the forsakenness of God or the presence of his wrath or the absence of his favor, but he courageously entered it, endured it, and exhausted it. So at his crucifixion, we see a humiliating tragedy and at the same time, a heroic triumph. Since Jesus did this in spite of his opposition, hostility, their deafness, the cost, since he did this, don't you think that in spite of all the things that you bring him, he has already done it for you. What can you bring to the table that he's not willing to pay for? He has already been crucified for the likes of you and me. This is not just a king or a son of God. He is the king, the son of God, the Messiah for all who see him and believe in him. This is what he's done for his people. So what does this mean? In verses 37 and 38, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So after Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last, um, you've heard this from Pastor John, um, the curtain has been torn from top to bottom as if God himself was tearing that curtain as if God himself was vindicating the person and work of Jesus, his son. What does that mean for us? The way to God is no longer through that temple. It's no longer through animal sacrifices, your performance, 
your supposed righteousness or the lack thereof. It's not by or through what you bring to the table. It's through Jesus Christ, plain and simple. And so, in verse 39, we see a Gentile, a centurion, who proclaims truly this man was the Son of God. What did the centurion see? If you look at verse 39, he was facing Jesus, and it says, and he saw that in this way he breathed this last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. Something about the way that Jesus died and breathed his last made him say, truly, this was the son of God. So what happened with this last crime? We don't get much from the text, but I think we get sufficient. Um, Here's what a comment says. It's almost impossible to cry out on a cross. You're suffocating. You're gasping. And yet Jesus dies with utter determination. That cry is a battle cry. It's a shout of triumph. That's what the centurion saw. How difficult it must have been to shout that last cry. Yet Jesus in uh, modern day terms, like a boss shouts his victory. And so what did the centurion do? It's almost as if he could not contain what he saw. He proclaimed what he saw. Truly, this man was the son of God. So we saw the majority view. We saw the minority view. And the question now is, who do you see? Who do you see? I want to read this um, comment that a pastor said. It's a pretty long comment, but I think, I don't know if I could have ever said this better. So here's the comment. And here's Mark's message. The truest of kings has died on behalf of his people. That is what real majesty looks like, but not everyone could see it. Mark desperately wants us to recognize it and learn to love it and follow it, but not many do. So hold open your eyes, he's saying. Force yourself to look and ask, who do you see? Because the life he led, the death he died, that is the life and the death he's calling us to follow. Maybe what you see looks like a life of embarrassment, of failure, of disgrace. And to a lot of people, that's a pretty good description of what it means to be a Christian. His repulsive sort of majesty just looks too weak to follow. Weakness, servanthood. But 
perhaps in his cross you can see something more. The Prince of Glory battling for you with ferocious love. Perhaps you can look and say that repulsive majesty is my life, my hope, my all. It's one or the other, but it cannot be both. End quote. Who do you see? The majority saw a nobody. Simon saw someone worth giving up his life and someone worth rearing his children unto. And the centurion saw the same. He saw the Son of God. Who do you see? Um, I don't think that we could, sometimes as Christians, we live our lives and we have this apathy and we become numb and this callous and we just kind of go through this monotonous routine and we live our lives until Sunday we get reminded and we hear things and then we're like oh we should have done that but then we go back to our lives how did Simon literally quite literally carry that cross how did the centurion proclaim and almost as if he's worshiping fall like truly this man was the son of God they both did something similar. It wasn't mustering their strength. I just got to do better. It wasn't necessarily willpower or mental fortitude. They just saw him and they understood the glory of him. He was the son of God. And that was worth dying for. So what does that mean? Um, I'm going to give some application from the Gospel of Mark. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him? Will you repent of your sins and trust in him? Will you be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ and have sweet fellowship with God now because the curtain has been torn? Where do we start? Because these things sound hard. I've been trying to do that all my life. Carrying the cross is heavy. It can be very discouraging. And maybe you want to give up. It makes it that much harder to carry the cross when you're looking on the ground, when you're looking to the floor. But what you got to do is lift your face and look at him who went before you and follow him. Because if you see him, you get strength. You see the purpose of your cross and you want to follow him. So where do we start? Like that pastor said, look at him. Hold open your eyes and force yourself to look. We start here. We persevere here. Jesus is everything. Um, another application I'll give you um, it's a practical one or uh, maybe a clear one in the beginning of your bulletin I did that reflection of Palm Sunday all the way to the Resurrection Sunday read it read it out loud every day this week if you really can't read get someone to read it with you if you don't understand what you're reading just read it anyway and thank God see him see him um, sometimes life can be hard, but
but if it's hard for you, find other people who are looking at him and help you to look at him. Lord willing, uh, we're going to continue next week to see and hear of Jesus' triumph and victory, the assurance of our faith, Easter Sunday when uh, Jesus resurrects. But until then, all you got to do is look at him. If there are things in your way that distract you, push, push those things away and just look at him. Um, what you're going to see is this humiliating and shameful tragedy. And at the same time, you're going to see this wonderful, amazing, good news that this Son of God never once wavered from saving His people. And He loved them all the way through. He passed that finish line. He never complained. That's who you ought to see, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you, we thank you, and we thank you yet again for the good news of your Son, Jesus. He is the truth, the way, and the life. May we, by simply looking at him, eagerly and earnestly desire to follow after him and to be just like him. May we find strength in him. May we deny ourselves and carry our crosses and follow after him. May we be reconciled to you and restart enjoying our sweet fellowship we have with you in him. Father, we need you. Help us to force ourselves to look. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for this marvelous work. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and our triumphant King, Jesus Christ. Amen.